up in Shakespeare's pub. Standing there an old tree in the dark. Oh, Marie Laveau. Hey, Marie Laveau. Hey, Marie Laveau. Hey, Marie Laveau. Oh, Marie Laveau. Who do we with down yonder in New Orleans? Now, oh, with a brown, she lost her speech. Hello and welcome to the A440 Podcast, the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with. I'm your host, Charles Fiore, and we're listening to Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans by Papa Celestine. Today's episode is going to get weird, folks. I'm just going to tell you, honestly, it's going to get a little weird. It's going to get a little crazy. We're going to put some things in conversation with one another that probably don't get to conversate all that often. And we're going to kind of see where it leads. Maybe we learn a thing or two. Maybe we just find some interesting connections. Anyway, we're going to have fun. So let's get started. October 31st is typically considered the scariest day of the year. A day and night when all the ghouls and goblins come out, dead souls dance around, and the air is full of dark magic. In America, we call it Halloween. In Mexico, it's called the Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos. In China, they call it the Hungry Ghost Festival. But if October 31st, Halloween, is Darth Vader from Star Wars, say, then June 24th is Emperor Palpatine, the stronger, more terrifying, but perhaps more under-the-radar pagan holiday, or at any rate, not the face of the pagan franchise, despite being arguably a whole lot creepier. June 24th, of course, is the summer solstice, the beginning of summer, the longest day of the year, when our part of the earth receives the most light, sun up to sundown. If you are into esoterica, uh, worshiping gods of old, or interested in communicating with the dead, June 24th is a good day to indulge yourself. Uh, Magical powers, both good and evil, are said to roam freely on this day. The Christian church, of course, built its own holiday calendar by squarely planting Judeo-Christian holidays atop pagan ones. Christmas Day falls on December 25th to replace the Roman celebration of Saturnalia, for example. And don't even ask where those bunnies and eggs come from during Easter. June 24th is no exception. Known the world over as St. John's Day or the Festival of San Juan, this Midsummer Day honors the birth of John the Baptist, who, according to the New Testament, was a prophet and contemporary if forerunner of Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible says John the Baptist was born six months before Christ. The church claims Saturnalia, December 25th, as the birthday of Jesus, so his cousin John gets June 24th, the summer solstice. John the Baptist, uh, 
JTB, if you will, uh, the historic person was a Hebrew itinerant preacher in the first century AD. He is a major figure, not only in Christianity, but in Islam and other faiths as well. During his time, he drew quite a following, as Jesus eventually did, although JTB always claimed he was not the Messiah, but one sent to prepare the way for the true Messiah. And eventually, Jesus came to him, and JTB baptized Jesus and sent Jesus on his mission. John the Baptist was most likely an Essene. Uh, the Essenes were a Jewish sect that practiced aesthetics, or the denying of worldly pleasures. This is why JTB is often depicted eating locusts and honey or wearing only a fur loincloth. JTB wasn't into a lot of glitz and glamour, or any really, and sort of made the inner person, the soul, his point of focus. So just like you may go to a candlelight service or open stockings on Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas, some of the biggest celebrations for the summer solstice happen on St. John's Eve, starting at sunset on June 23rd. Now in Brazil, for example, after sunset, on June 23rd, people go out to a beach or any accessible body of water, uh, bathtubs even, and at midnight, they fall backwards into these bodies of water three, seven, 12 times, okay? This is done to kind of cleanse the body from any bad luck, uh, evil spirits, and ask for good luck for the coming year. In Poland, traditional folk rituals include groups of young men and women singing ritual songs to each other. The young women uh, wear crowns fashioned from flowers, and these are all later thrown into the nearest body of water. Uh, and then, of course, the boys tear off their shirts and uh, dive into the water and retrieve them and try to claim one of the crowns, right? Bonfires and bonfire jumping, just like any good frat party, are also part of the proceedings. For some occultist groups, such as a particular brand of Louisiana voodoo, John the Baptist is a patron saint, and St. John's Eve, on June 23rd, is celebrated in full. So, what does all this have to do with music, or today's episode in particular? Well, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. The song we listened to to start this episode is a song titled Marie Laveau, written and recorded by Papa Celestine, an American trumpeter and band leader, in 1954, Marie Laveau tells the story of Marie Catherine Laveau, born in 1801, died 1881, known widely as the Voodoo Queen of New Orleans. Very little of her life can actually be substantiated, so we'll never know whether she actually had a pet snake named Zombie, uh, but we do know she practiced a type of voodoo that mixed Catholic and voodoo gods, and that she, and later her daughter, held big public events the biggest of which was always held on June 23rd, St. John's Eve. You'll come across Marie Laveau's name in all sorts of places, in a novel by Francine Prose, on an episode of American Horror Story, in a song by Grant Lee Buffalo, shout out to my sister who had to endure that song, Dixie Drugstore, about a zillion times growing up when I was driving her to school each morning. When I originally began researching this episode, I thought Marie Laveau might be an archetype. I mean, she is, of course, built mostly on legend and fear of the other, 
but I thought she might be an archetype or an early prototype for later characters who appear in songs such as Minnie the Moocher from the Cab Calloway song of that same name, made very famous by Calloway's unforgettable performance in the 1981 movie The Blues Brothers. Uh, that's what we're listening to now, by the way. Turns out, that's not really true. Minnie the Moocher was a known quantity among songwriters during a certain era, and she too was based on a real person. This episode has enough and is going to have enough digressions, so I won't get into Minnie the Moocher much here, other than to say Cab Calloway's version is the most famous, but hardly the only song about this sad, tragic, and now famous woman. While I wasn't able to find a direct line between Cab Calloway and Papa Celestine or Marie Laveau and Minnie the Moocher, I, mean, I think it's likely that Cab Calloway was at least familiar with the song Marie Laveau. I mean, those introductions are very, awfully similar. So while the connection between Marie Laveau and Minnie the Moocher never materialized, once I discovered that Marie Laveau was the voodoo queen of New Orleans and threw her biggest annual bash on St. John's Eve, it made me curious about this patron saint of the occult, voodoo being far from the only esoteric group to hold St. John the Baptist in high esteem, specifically the relevance and symbolic importance of John the Baptist in one of my favorite operas, Salome. Richard Strauss debuted Salome in 1905 in German, but the version that was eventually made famous was the version he wrote in French, which opened in 1907. The soprano Mary Garden embodied the quintessential performance in 1909 with this French-language version. The opera of Salome, of course, was based on one of my favorite one-act plays by one of my favorite writers, Oscar Wilde, who wrote the play the opera was based on in French in 1891. Salome tells the story of the biblical princess Salome, daughter of King Herod back in first century AD. So we're talking right there on the cusp of the BC AD changeover into AD, but not too far, maybe 30 years or so. When the play and opera opens, King Herod has imprisoned an itinerant preacher and prophet known as John the Baptist, JTB. Now. JTB wasn't afraid to get political. I mean, he may have not been into worldly goods, but he'd been speaking out against King Herod's recent marriage to Herodias, the ex-wife of King Herod's half-brother, whose name was also Herod. Herodias was a woke woman for her time. Hashtag woke. Her divorce from Herod II and subsequent shotgun wedding to Herod Antipas caused a lot of talk but was actually pretty ahead of her time. I mean, she was showing some agency there, is all I'm saying, at a time when women weren't able to much. JTB, though, didn't see it that way, and finally cast so much shade that Herodias had her new husband, Herod of Antipas, throw JTB in jail, in the bottom of a cistern, a deep well, outside their palace. Fast forward a bit. Salome falls in love with John the Baptist, who, of course, 
being an Essene and a mystic and having baptized Jesus Christ himself, I mean, imagine that line on your resume, wants nothing to do with her. Across the hall, her stepfather, Herod, is creepily developing kind of a thing for her as well and asks Salome to dance for him. Salome agrees to dance if Herod agrees to give her anything she asks. He's so lovesick, or something sick, he agrees, and Salome dances what's called in wild script the Dance of the Seven Veils. Playwright Oscar Wilde invented the Dance of the Seven Veils specifically for his play, and his original stage directions give no details. The script says only, quote, Salome dances the Dance of the Seven Veils, unquote. The Dance of the Seven Veils has, over the past 200 years, helped in large part by Strauss's later opera, developed a cultural significance. It's generally portrayed as a kind of belly dance. It is, by some measure, the first striptease. It's erotic, to say the least. In Aubrey Beardsley's illustrations for the print edition of Wild Script, he depicts Salome bare-chested and pantalooned. This imagery has its roots in Middle Eastern-style dance, especially the story of the Mesopotamian god Inanna, who basically, while searching the underworld for her lost love, removes jewelry and clothing at seven stops along the way. Seven stops in the underworld. Seven veils removed during history's first striptease. Oscar Wilde lived in a time when there was a lot of popular fascination with the occult. Wilde also was raised a Freemason at Oxford in the mid-1880s, and the Freemasons regard John the Baptist as one of their patron saints. As an aside, one of Wilde's Masonic brothers was diamond magnet Cecil Rhodes of modern-day Rhodes scholarship fame. You can tuck that one away for a cocktail party later. Anyway, of course, the number seven has great significance for religions the world over, including Christianity. We have seven days of the week for a reason. Some also believe humankind has seven levels of consciousness, representing various physical and spiritual aspects of man that mastery of which leads a person to true enlightenment. Okay, look, I know things are getting a little funky here. If it feels like we're on a nosedive into the incomprehensible abyss of esoterica, I apologize. Trust me. That's all I can ask. Trust me. I've got my hand on the throttle, and we're going to pull up here in just a second. Salome dances the Dance of the Seven Veils, removing some or all of her clothing, and of course, her stepfather, Herod, is ready to give her whatever she wishes. What she asks for, in return, is the head of John the Baptist, who so cruelly spurned her advances earlier. Herod offers Salome riches, beyond imagining to get her to change her mind. There are no peacocks, he says, like under my peacocks. One of my favorite lines. I mean, Herod's the kind of guy who likes to hedge his bets. I mean, he may not necessarily believe in all the stuff John the Baptist is talking about, but at the same time, uh, he doesn't want to tempt fate. Like he would, re he would really rather not put John the Baptist to death. So he tries to convince Salome to take anything else, but she won't have any of it. All she wants is JTB's head on a platter. And so, with much reluctance, Herod delivers. Well, I won't spoil the ending for you. Uh, I think I've given away enough to say that uh, on a purely superficial level, this is a bizarre story, right? I mean, there's this kind of incest thing happening between Herod and Herodias, and then Herod and Salome. You've got a captain of the guard committing suicide because Salome doesn't love him. Yeah, that happens earlier. Herod slips in the captain's blood. Anyway, 
You've got this crazy preacher dude yelling all kinds of doom and gloom from the bottom of a well. Then this crazy dude gets decapitated, and Salome runs around making out with a severed head. Oh, spoiler alert. It doesn't get any more normal from there. Let's just say that. Symbolically, though, if we can assume Wilde's interest in esoterica and spirituality, which I think we can, just judging from his other works, and we understand that Wilde, in his time, was the internationally famous poster boy for the aestheticism movement, which sort of worshipped at the feet of beauty, uh, admiring snazzy dressing and maximal color and style, we can read and listen to Salome in a whole new way. Salome, the embodiment of lust and physical desire, once John the Baptist, the embodiment of natural, spirit-filled virtue. She is rejected. She dances. She removes her seven levels of consciousness. She becomes her most enlightened self. Only then can she consecrate her relationship to JTB by kissing him on his dead lips. And so, you know, Oscar Wilde's kind of messed up universe becomes one with a greater spirit, achieving the highest level of consciousness. Well, anyway, that's one way to read it. Wilde often referred to the play in musical terms and believed that recurring phrases, quote, binded together like a piece of music with recurring motifs. These motifs include how pale the moon looks, the beating of the wings of the angel of death, spooky stuff. The play and then the opera were so controversial for their time that the original play couldn't even be performed in English because back then there was a law on the books making it illegal to represent biblical characters on stage. It was eventually produced in France because, well, of course, the French are always a little bit more loose when it comes to these kinds of things. In 1906, Maud Allen's version of The Dance of the Seven Veils became infamous. Shout out to Three Amigos, that means more than famous. Uh, production of the play led to a libel case in 1918 when Allen was accused of promoting sexual immorality. Many churches protested the release of the silent movie version in 1918, and even Strauss's operatic version, now widely admired and produced, was not without its controversies. The original Salome, Marie Wittick, refused to perform the Dance of the Seven Veils because it was so uncouth, I guess, so another dancer stood in for her during the performances. Composer Gustav Mahler tried to bring the opera to Vienna, but couldn't get the consent of the Vienna censor. And even in the United States, when Salome premiered in 1907, reviews called the story, quote, repugnant to Anglo-Saxon minds, unquote. Donors complained, subsequent productions were canceled, and the opera wouldn't be produced again in the U.S. until 1934, almost 30 years later. Like the original script, the opera makes liberal use of les motifs, or short melodies with symbolic meanings. For more on les motifs, check out the A440 podcast, Season 1, Episode 4, Trip the Les Motifs Fantastic. There's one aspect of the score specifically, though, that has become notorious. In the final scene of the opera, after Salome kisses John the Baptist's severed head, the music builds to a dramatic climax, which ends with a cadence involving a very dissonant, unorthodox chord. It has been called the most sickening chord in all of opera, an epoch-making dissonance with which Strauss takes Salome to the depth of degradation and the quintessence of decadence 
Here is ecstasy falling in upon itself, crumbling into the abyss. It's not pretty, that's for sure. The chord is what's known as polytonal. Uh, PSA warning, we're about to nerd out. With a low A7, the dominant 7th chord merged with a higher F-sharp major chord. The chord is so dissonant it kind of takes your breath away, more so at the end of this opera when Strauss has woven all these beautiful lay motifs and suddenly this single chord brings down the show. The use of the dominant 7th chord, of course, is purely coincidental. Or is it? Strauss was rumored to be a member of the Roycrucians, who also revere not only the number 7, but believe in the sevenfold states of man and celebrate as one of their patron saints, say it with me, John the Baptist. Which is why on the evening of June 23rd, voodoo handlers and spiritual seekers such as Marie Laveau have historically hosted magical events, hoping to tap into whatever powers, both good and bad, are flying around in the air that night. Which is why, after some 2,000 years, John the Baptist and all he represents a return to our true natures, an inner reckoning, a kind of nirvana, the highest state of human consciousness, continues to hold fascination for artists from Oscar Wilde to Cab Calloway. Thanks for listening.